0: Good morning everyone, it's good to see you. As we uh, continue our Lenten series, The Way of the Wilderness, uh, this Sunday morning, uh, we'll be talking about silence in the wilderness. So as I'm sure you know, uh, Lent, the season, uh, the Christian season, uh, starts on Ash Wednesday and ends on Easter Sunday. It's 40 days when Sundays are excluded because we want to celebrate those days and not, you know, fast those days. And so um, that marks the time of the 40 days that Jesus spent uh, in the wilderness um, after his baptism and before his public ministry. And so uh, the word wilderness, um, which comes from a Greek word, could just as easily be translated desert. So this uh, video that we just saw came from Planet Earth, uh, the BBC uh, special. that recently came out with Planet Earth 2. Perhaps some of you are watching it. But when I hear the word wilderness, coming from where I come from, I don't think the desert or kind of the, the high desert look of New Mexico or Utah or Nevada or Arizona. I think the forest. You know, I think deer and squirrel and fox and bear. Um, and so growing up, uh, that was my idea that Jesus spent time in the wilderness. Like he's, he's a boy scout, you know, he's camping. But then um, I had an opportunity a couple of times now to visit the Judean wilderness. And I've also driven across country, and it is amazingly similar. Uh, Without um, exaggeration, the wilderness or desert that Jesus spent time in looks a lot like Albuquerque um, or Tucumcari or one of those places, uh, Flagstaff, you know, along that section of... uh, Of the old highway. So in order to kind of uh, uh, focus in today though on the sermon, we're looking at silence in the wilderness and we're going to be talking particularly about an experience that the prophet Elijah had with silence uh, in the wilderness. And so we're going to practice a bit of that. And so to begin, we're going to have uh, 30 seconds of silence. I know this might be hard on some of you, but uh, let's just try and do it together. So in our fast-paced, loud, and kind of crazy world, we don't have a lot of time for silence. We're kind of busy. In fact, we wear our busyness, and I've said this before, we often wear our busyness as a badge of honor. We ask you, how are you doing? I'm busy. Well, that must mean good. It must mean I'm, I'm a hard worker, or I'm popular, my calendar's full. But there's, there's a quality to silence and it's a quality that Elijah experienced and so we're going to focus a bit on his life. So in the book of 1 Kings, we get lots of Elijah stories, but we will pick up in 1 Kings 17. And uh, this gives a bit of the backstory of what brings uh, Elijah to the wilderness and or the desert and his experience with silence. So Elijah, the prophet, the mighty man of God, uh, prophesies to the king, King Ahab, that there is going to be a drought. He's like, you folks are ungodly. I'm tired of it. And I'm going to say it's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain until I say it is going to rain. Which is a pretty bold statement. And so he says it's not going to rain. And sure enough, uh, it doesn't rain. And he goes, he goes across to the other side of the Jordan. It's an interesting part of the story. He sits by a, a river called Cherith. But in a lot of translations, it's not called a river. It's called a wadi, uh, which is just a, a kind of a Midi, Middle Eastern word for river or riverbed. Personally, I've always liked that as a, a wadi because I'm, I'm Robbie Waddell, and wadi sounds kind of similar to that. Uh, I thought that was going to be a lot funnier. You know, you folks laugh a lot of times when I talk, and I'm thinking, I, don't, I have no idea what they're laughing at. I'm just trying to teach. And then I try, and I, I try a joke, and it, like, lands like a lead balloon. So um, he's there, and to connect this part with previous experiences that we've heard with the, the Hebrews and the children of Israel in the wilderness, he is fed by God. God sends in ravens, and he has both meat and bread in the morning, And meat and bread in the evening. So even better than last week with the man in the morning and the quail at night. This guy's really getting fed. So then he's told by God uh, to leave that spot and to go uh, to Zarephath, which is a village outside of Sidon, which would have been in modern day like Lebanon. So he gets there and he sees this lady and uh, she looks like she's going to get some water. And he's like, hey, can you get me a drink? And she's like, well, and he goes, oh, by the way, uh, can you bring me a piece of bread with that as well? And you know the story. She's like, all I have is a little bit of, I don't have any bread. I'm I'm getting you some water. I just got a little bit of oil and a little bit of meal. I'm going to make this last piece of bread for my son and I, and then we're going to die because we have nothing. The drought's killing us. And he kind of makes a deal with her. He says, look, um, I'm the man of God. If you feed me, Um, you'll have enough. And that's how that story goes. So things are going pretty well for Elijah so far, I'd say. He's confronted the king. He said it's going to dry up. It has. He's been fed himself miraculously by God in the wilderness. And now he's experiencing this again with this widow and her son who are miraculously being provided for again. The next story is a sad one. The widow's son apparently has died. And Elijah's like, my God, what are you doing? I mean, here we are, we're trying to do your will, and this, this you know, kid dies? This is the same lady who's just been protecting me. You know, she gave me her last stuff, and then you provided, and now the son is dead? <clears throat> so he goes in, and he prays for the child. Uh, the, the text is kind of uh, a little strange here. It says he laid down on the child which I, I tell my, my students, particularly in youth ministry, uh, that is not a biblical precedent for what you should do. <laughs> no laying down on the children. So he, he lays down on the child, and the child comes back to life. So, so now things are really stacking up in Elijah's favor. So he leaves there to go find the king, the king of Israel. And he can't find him, and he finds this guy named Obadiah, and he says, all right, Obadiah, go tell the king I'm here. And Obadiah doesn't want to do it because he's afraid that, you know, the spirit will will whisk um, Elijah away again. And Elijah says, look, I promise I'm going to stay. Go get the king. So he confronts the king and the king's like, you know, you're an enemy of Israel. You're, you're denying Israel of water and therefore denying Israel of life. And he says, Elijah says, all right, we'll have a, we'll have a duel. We'll have a contest. Uh, meet me at Mount Carmel uh, with all the prophets of Baal. And so you've heard this story before as well. And as it goes, uh, there's like 450 prophets of Baal. And the only prophet of Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty at the time, seems to be Elijah. So they get in this contest and the prophets of Baal have, have built their altar And they're not supposed to put any fire to it because the contest is whichever um, sacrifice burns, then uh, that God, whoever they're worshiping, is the real God. So the prophets of Baal have done their thing and they're praying and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out. And Elijah is like, um, you ever watched a football game uh, when it's your team playing the other person's team and your team's doing poorly and the other person just will not give you any uh, grace at all? Like just complete and utter grief. You ever tried to watch a cowboy game with Phil Grimes? <laughs> I'm just saying, Elijah's like, hey, maybe you should speak louder. Maybe your God's getting old. Perhaps he's going deaf. And then it gets worse. He goes, maybe he's, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. So keep going. When he gets back, maybe he'll answer your prayer. I mean, that's, that's some pretty big trash talk. <laughs> maybe your God's gone to the bathroom. <laughs> Just keep, keep, keep at it. And so, of course, then um, it's Elijah's turn. And he gets these 12 stones, kind of representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gets four um, kind of jugs of water and has them poured on. And then another four. And then another four. And uh, like in the community update, if we're keeping up with our math, uh, that's a total of 12. So they've turned 12 jugs of water. He prays and fire from heaven comes and kind of consumes it all. So, I mean, Elijah is like 5 and 0 oh now. I mean, things are, like, going really well for him. And he's like, all right, time to pray for the rain. So he prays, and he sends his assistant up the hill to look uh, over Mount Carmel into the Mediterranean to see if there are any clouds, and there's none. So he keeps on praying. And his assistant, who apparently got some pretty good cardio that day, is up and down, up and down, seeing if there's anything. And then finally, the seventh time he goes... He sees this small little cloud. And Elijah's like, that's it. Prayer's been answered. He goes, tell the king to get back to, you know, to Samaria, get back to the palace. Uh, I'll meet him there. And he runs ahead. And now he's like 6-0. Oh. I mean, nothing could really go better for Elijah. I mean, he's kind of like the prophet of prophets. Then the king, Ahab, uh, gets home tells his wife, Jezebel, hey, honey, look, um, I know I've I've tried to have been real kind of congenial with you. We've been worshiping my God and your God, the old gods and the new. And, yeah, you didn't mean to laugh there, did you? Um, The old gods and the new. And and she says, all right, I've had it. I've had it with this prophet. I, I can't stand Elijah. She says, send word to Elijah that... When I get a hold of him, um, I will do to him what they've done to the prophets of Baal, which had been slaughtered. I will do to him what they've done to the prophets of Baal. So Elijah hears this, and he runs out of town. Now you would think, if you've prophesied a drought and it happened, if you were miraculously fed in the wilderness, if you and a widow and her son are miraculously provided for, If the widow's son dies and you pray for him and he lives, if you get in a contest with the prophets of Baal and I guess win, and then you pray for rain and it rains, you might think, you might just think, "Mm, I'm on the right side. Uh, God is with me. God will care for me. Sometimes we have very uh, short memories. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember all that God has done for us. And when hard times come or when threats uh, arise, we can tend to forget about God's faithfulness and kind of fear for ourselves. Certainly this is what Elijah does. So Elijah is ready to go and once again gets kind of miraculously fed uh, two times uh, because the angel of the Lord says, you got a long way to go. So it takes Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to get from where he is to Mount Horeb, which is not just going out in the wilderness, but going back to the wilderness, the wilderness where this whole discussion of the way of the wilderness began, the wilderness that Moses found himself in, when he saw the burning bush. Forty days and forty nights. Kind of uh, proleptically looking forward, I think, to the time of Jesus in the wilderness. So he gets to Mount Horeb, and that's where uh, the story here picks up. And I just want to share with you a bit of what it says in First Kings. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing, Elijah? I love that. He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, and this is God that's saying, God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rots and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Now, I'm just Pentecostal enough to know that God is always in the fire. But it says here, verse 12, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the NRSV translates this a sound of sheer silence. Other translations translate it a still small voice or a whisper. I particularly like the NRSV. The sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, it does it mean to hear silence, he, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Then came a voice that said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's the same question he had before. And he answered, I've been zealous for the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, this is the end, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram and you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel and you shall anoint Elisha son of Zaphat of Abel of Milo as the prophet in your place. What, what does it mean that there's a, there's a wind and God's not in it and there's an earthquake and God's not in it and there's fire and God's not in it but then there's just kind of Silence and somehow God is in the silence. Um, there, there are a lot of things that make this somewhat of a difficult sermon for me to preach. Uh, one, again, I grew up Pentecostal. We did not experience silence in our worship services. We experienced, we experienced a lot of volume. And in fact, we would, we would crank up the volume. I mean, if the preacher wasn't preaching loud enough, we'd just preach with him. You know, there was a lot of talk back, um, kind of dialogically. Uh, the music was loud. The prayers were loud. The tongues were loud. The interpretations were loud. The prophecies were loud. The interpretations of the prophecies were loud. We get some uh, calisthenics in. Uh, kind of dancing in the spirit and running in the spirit. Uh, my dad was a runner. One of the guys that kind of ran the aisle. And uh, I love it. I mean, I, and, I, and I say that in the present tense. I love it. Uh, not that I loved it but I, I do. I love it. I, I love excitement. I, I love the idea that we worship a God who's not just cerebral in our thoughts, but that is embodied, that that Jesus was incarnated, that I can feel the presence of God, that God doesn't just affect my thoughts, but affects my emotions and, and, and the rest of my body. Um, but there's something to be said about silence, and I think the quality that it brings to any relationship. So I'd like to say kind of four things about about that. You know, when you first meet someone, you're you're a brand new acquaintance, and silence is awkward. You know that awkward silence? You feel like you have to fill it. Um, I'm not sure if you experienced our silence earlier as, as awkward or not. We don't often have kind of moments of silence in the church, but... In our church. But yeah, you have that kind of awkward silence, and so we fill it with small talk. We talk about anything. I mean, initially we might exchange our names, uh, or where we're from, or what we do, or the weather, or, you know, contemporary uh, news. And so we, we almost have to, if you're at a gathering, whether it's in work or social extended family, if you get placed and somehow you end up one-on-one with somebody you don't know, you feel like you need to say something because you're not just going to stand there side by side. However, if we move past that level of initial acquaintance into somebody that we know a little bit and we're getting kind of friendlier with and we're seeing on some kind of more regular basis, we still use a lot of words but the words are, are less uh, trivial. Uh, we get a little deeper because we, we're starting to know both their likes and their dislikes. Uh, we might talk about some particular uh, film or we found out something about them so we can kind of revisit that. Oh yeah, I remember you, you're from here and you like this or that, you know, you like science fiction. And so we have something that we kind of hold on to. Silence can still be awkward in that level of the relationship, um, but we find kind of new ways to avoid it. Of course, at some point, if we're committed, we move past that level of kind of friendliness into kind of a deeper friendship. What's nice about deeper friendship is that that sense of silence is lost its awkwardness. Like, you can be with a close friend without necessarily having to have a lot of words. You might just be in the car together, kind of just driving along, and there's not a lot of conversation. I mean, sometimes there is, with with good friends, and then sometimes there's not. But when there's not, it doesn't seem problematic anymore. We're comfortable. We're comfortable with ourselves, we're comfortable with them, and we're comfortable with the us that represents us and them, right? There is another level, I think, that kind of goes past that kind of deep friendship. Some people want to say it's kind of represented in kind of that one true soulmate or lifelong friend. Some people relate it to marriage. But there's something really deep, deeper than all of that, that I think we experience only between ourselves and God. Because God knows our thoughts. He knows our subconscious. He knows our dreams that we can't even remember when we wake up. And down deep in there is this silence that the rest of of life is kind of resting upon. One of the uh, early Christian thinkers called silence God's first language. That before God spoke words, God communicated in silence. There's a beautifulness to it, right, a deepness. So if, if we were to compare it to kind of romance, and I'll, I'll give, uh, not that I consider myself a relationship expert, but I'll give a little bit of advice here um, for those of you in romantic relationships, um, dating, married, or otherwise. I'm not sure what the otherwise is there. <laughs> but um, if you find yourselves, because we live in Florida, if we find yourself sitting on a beach, and the sun is going down, be quiet. There are no words that are going to make that a better experience. It's beautiful. Just watch and listen. Any words that you try to offer are going to kind of pull you out of the experience back to the surface. But let your heart and soul and self just kind of deeply rest into it and find that in the silence there is kind of life. Certainly I do experience this in my, in my own life. Um, whether, whether or not I am um, at, in the moment going to be talking with Angela, I'm always kind of happier to be with her. So uh, I might be reading a book or even watching the television, which I could do in a variety of places in or around the house. But if she's in one part of the house, I might just go there and, or, and do what I was doing. Not, not because I'm gonna be using words in my communication with her, but just because we share the same space and the same presence. And, and, I, and I like that. It, uh, it brings me solace, it brings me comfort. It's the sound of sheer silence. And this is, uh, friends, something I think we know intellectually, but sometimes we either forget or don't know experientially and existentially. And that is that God is always with us. But sometimes we're so busy, uh, things are so crowded. So noisy, the whole kind of cacophony of life. And I get you, i got a lot of, a lot of extra sounds, a lot of cacophony in my life, right? You kind of know me. But <clears throat> there, there is this, um, back with God, <clears throat> there is this practice that sometimes Christians practice. Some call it meditation, some call it contemplation, some call it silent prayer. But it's a regular practice of just kind of sitting and not saying anything, but just being aware, aware that God is present, that God loves us and that we love God. It doesn't have to be filled with a lot of thoughts. It doesn't have to have a lot of explanation. It's about shared presence. It is a great practice. It, it, when practiced on a regular basis, I believe it will provide a deep keel that keeps the ship of your life from being easily swayed. Sometimes uh, the ship is an ancient Christian icon for the church. Um, and sometimes we use it, and the metaphor is expressed in a variety of ways, that the, the spirit feel, fills our sails that um, the word is the anchor. Um, The the fishing boat or or ship is some of the oldest of Christian uh, graffiti. But this this practice of silence, this um, awareness that no matter what's going on, whether we feel like we're really kicking it and things are going our way, We've prophesied it's not going to rain, and it doesn't. We get miraculously provided for. We get in a contest with our enemies, and we win. Or if we're fearful and we think that um, our end is upon us. Uh, the, the practice of silence, the sound of silence, is a great... Um, Practice and experience to know that God is there. And so sometimes God is in the wind, but not all the time. Sometimes God is in the earthquake, but not all the time. Sometimes God is in the fire. Amen. I just amen myself on that one. (laughs) But not all the time. But God is in the silence.